Good evening. My name is Sergio Verdu, and uh, on behalf of the uh, University Public Lectures Committee, I'd like to welcome everyone to tonight's Edge Lecture in Public and International Affairs. This uh, lecture series was founded in 1957 in memory of Walter E. Edge, who served twice as governor of New Jersey and also as United States Senator and Ambassador to France. Uh, the lectureship is supported by a bequest from his estate assigned to the university by his family as a means of bringing to Princeton eminent statesmen from abroad as well as leaders in American public life. Tonight's uh, distinguished lecturer will be introduced by Nancy Wise Malkiel, who as professor of history specializes on 20th century history of the United States and as dean of the college is the senior officer responsible for Princeton's undergraduate academic program, Dean Malkiel. Good evening. What Sergio didn't uh, tell you is that I sit by virtue of office as a member of the Committee on Public Lectures, and I think that that is what in, um, enables me to uh, stand before you tonight to have the privilege of introducing our distinguished speaker. Imagine uh, introducing Bill Bowen to a Princeton audience. Um, the basic facts uh, are certainly well-known. Uh, a Princeton PhD, a member of the faculty in economics and public affairs, provost of the university uh, beginning in 1967, the 17th president beginning in 1972 until his retirement in 1998 to take up the presidency of the Andrew W. Mellon uh, Foundation. But it's probably worth mentioning uh, some other things. First of all, this is a, an extraordinary teacher um, who I think uh, probably uh, trained a number of people in this room uh, in economics and certainly set uh, an extraordinary example uh, as a passionately gifted and committed uh, teacher in Economics 101, a role he continued into his presidency. As an administrator, I think it's fair to say that he uh, knew more about everyone's job in the university than anyone holding uh, those positions at any given time and could have done all of our jobs um, uh, all by himself, and the university would have been uh, even better run than it was uh, with the rest of us uh, in place. Uh, this is someone who has had more of a transformative effect on the modern Princeton than perhaps well, as transformative an effect as any president uh, in the modern history of the university. So much of what this institution is today is attributable to his leadership and vision, that we are a great world-class research university which retains the heart and soul of a liberal arts college is really of his making. Um, that we are composed as we are of men and women, of blacks and whites and Asians and Hispanics, uh, is of his making in important ways. He is, for purposes of this evening's lecture, uh, uh, was a, uh, a devoted um, athlete himself um, in college and after, and certainly played a key role uh, in developing uh, the athletics uh, at Princeton, of which we are so proud uh, today. As president of the Mellon Foundation, among other things, he has done what he has always done so well, which is to uh, ground thoughtful, uh, penetrating analyses uh, in massive data uh, to address public policy issues of great importance. Uh, not only to educational institutions, but to the larger society. He did that 
with respect to race and college admissions in the shape of the river, published in 1998. He began addressing the issue of college sports in the game of life in 2001, and now his new book, uh, Reclaiming the Game, uh, just published, uh, I think, this month. So we will hear tonight about Reclaiming the Game, College Sports, and Educational Values. It's a pleasure to turn the podium over to Bill Bowen. Nancy, thank you for that very gracious introduction. I'm delighted to be back in this room that I have inhabited so many hours and in which so many students have suffered so much. <laughs> and I'm delighted to be in the good company of many, many uh, old friends, including many friends from the world of college sports. I'm delighted to see Betty Constable here. I'm delighted to see Dave Benjamin, and no doubt there are many others whom I just didn't see uh, in the sea of faces. It's nice, uh, nice to be back. Uh, our topic tonight, college sports and educational values, is one of the most complex, emotion-laden, and contentious issues facing academically selective colleges and universities today. On these campuses, it is far more contentious than affirmative action, another issue with which I've been deeply involved. To illustrate, a colleague of mine, James Shulman, who was co-author of the previous book, The Game of Life, was brave enough to speak at a gathering organized by the Harvard Athletic Alumni and at this event, he was moved to refer to himself as a designated piñata. <laughs> at issue are major questions about our commitment to educational values, the rationing of opportunities both to attend these schools and to play sports, and our truth-telling obligations. My thinking about this topic is rooted in the straightforward conviction that intercollegiate athletics should enhance the educational experiences of students and in the process contribute to the overall quality of residential life. Yet, sadly, the realization of these traditional purposes is threatened today, I believe, by powerful forces that create an ever-widening divide between intercollegiate athletics and the educational missions of many colleges and universities, including those that are free of the unique problems of big-time sports. Everyone is aware from watching TV, reading the daily papers, of the recurring scandals at some scholarship-granting schools that are, whether they acknowledge it or not, in the entertainment business. But intercollegiate sports programs at places like Amherst, Bryn Mawr, Columbia, Denison, Yale, that offer no athletic scholarships and make no money from athletics, face issues that are at least as serious in terms of educational policy as those that confront the ACC and the Big Ten. It will not be lost on you that Princeton is one such school. But this talk is not, I underscore, not about Princeton. Please do not blame President Tillman for anything I say tonight, or at any other time for that matter. One president at a time is enough, maybe more than enough. <clears throat> the findings I am going to present tonight are based on new research that Sarah Levin and I have just published in a Princeton University press book titled Reclaiming the Game, College Sports and Educational Values. Thanks to the cooperation of the 33 academically selective colleges and universities in the expanded college and beyond database shown here, Sarah and I were able to examine the record, the detailed records of all 27,811 students who entered these selective schools in the fall of 95. 
We also had access to information about more than 130,000 applicants for places in the fall 1999 entering cohort. These data are more recent, more comprehensive than those presented in the game of life. They also incorporate one very important new distinction. In this second study, we are able to differentiate between recruited athletes those who were on the coaches' list submitted to admissions offices from both other varsity athletes, walk-ons, and all other classmates called students at large. One key fact is that intercollegiate athletics programs have a far greater impact on the composition of the entering class and perhaps on the campus ethos at an Ivy League university or a small liberal arts college than at Division I-A universities. Whereas Ohio State or the University of Michigan can field awesome teams with only a tiny percentage of students, a small liberal arts college or a university with a modest-sized undergraduate college uh, cannot do this. College athletes, as we can see from this figure, comprise anywhere from 25 to 40 percent of the class at a liberal arts college. Look at the NESCAC colleges and the co-ed liberal arts colleges. And 20 to 30 percent at an Ivy League university, as compared with under 5 percent at a place such as the University of Michigan. And such very different percentages make a very, very big difference. True, many big-time programs suffer from commercialization, cheating, other vices that are largely absent at the schools in our study. But there are other issues. Our research shows that, as a group, recruited athletes in the Ivies and in a number of the country's most outstanding liberal arts colleges differ more and more from their fellow students. They enter with weaker credentials, and they tend to underperform academically. Increasingly, they are seen on campuses as a group apart from their classmates. One irony is that the far more visible problems of many big-time programs engender a false sense of comparative well-being and therefore complacency on many of the campuses on which we are focusing. The success by invidious comparison syndrome, we can't be so bad, just look at what is going on over there, invites a numbing complacency. The issues are different, yes, but they are as consequential at these schools as at the big-time programs. They are central to what these places are all about. Two final preliminaries. First, I cannot emphasize strongly enough that we are talking about policies, not about people. Students who excel in sports have done absolutely nothing wrong and many things right. They certainly do not deserve to be demonized for having followed the signals given to them by coaches, parents, admissions officers, alumni, admiring fans. Our quarrel is with policies, priorities, and the resulting system, not with those caught up in it. Second, a major purpose of our research has been to find the facts. And the conclusions we present are heavily data-driven. Anyone seeking to find an orderly path through the myths and nostalgia endemic to college sports will recognize the desperate need to move beyond the anecdote range and ground conclusions on a solid base of empirical evidence. It is comforting that all major findings from our research easily pass any normal test of statistical significance. Indeed, it is rare to find, unprecedented in my experience, to find a set of empirical results as relentlessly consistent as those we will present. To be sure, what we report are averages, and some individuals will, of course, do far better than the norm for their group, just as others will do worse. As for those who doubt the validity of any statistics, 
We refer them to Damon Runyon, who once observed, it may be that the race is not always to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, but that is the way to bet. (laughs) Principal findings. Those of you with an appetite for detail who would like to know, for example, whether the academic outcomes for female soccer players in the Ivy League differ and by how much from those for female soccer players in NESCAC colleges or from those for male soccer or football players, will want to peruse the myriad figures, tables, regression equations presenting in the book. You will find, I think, many interesting tidbits. My plan tonight is to give you the briefest of tours through the findings, a kind of ESPN Sports Center highlights film, uh, if you will, before commenting on why I believe all of this matters and what might actually be done at a practical level to make things better, to reclaim the game. I begin with recruitment and admissions. Over the last several decades, the amount of time spent on recruiting by coaches has increased dramatically. As Richard Rasmussen, the executive director of the University Athletic Association, puts it, recruiting has become every coach's second and third sport. In building a class, there is no counterpart to the time and other resources devoted to recruiting athletes. Having made such an effort to identify top prospects and to encourage them to apply, coaches naturally expect, certainly I would, that admissions offices will pay special attention to the names on the list that they submit and especially to the names high on the list. We can see how much difference being on the list makes by looking at figures 3A and B, which I've just put up, for male and female athletes in the Ivy League and in NESCAC. What these figures show are differences in the odds of admission at the same, same SAT levels for recruited athletes and all other applicants. The recruited athletes are the top parts of the figures, the other applicants the bottom. Now, as one would expect, acceptance rates rise with SAT scores for all groups of students, slope positively upward. But what we need to focus on is the substantial gap at each SAT level between the acceptance rates for the recruited athletes and all other students. For example, if we just look at the 1,200 to 1,299 range, for example, in the Ivies on the left, the probability of being admitted for a male athlete on a coach's list was about, as you can see, about 50%, as compared with a probability of about 10% for all other male applicants. The corresponding probabilities of admission for recruited female athletes and all other female candidates were just over 60% for the recruited women athletes and roughly 10%. Similar but slightly smaller gaps are present at the NESCAC colleges. Looking across all SAT ranges, the typical male recruit in the Ivies had more than four times as good a chance of being admitted as did the comparable male applicant not on a coach's list. The odds of admission for the typical female recruit on a coach's list were even more favorable than that. Now, to anticipate one frequently asked question, the admissions advantage for recruited athletes is far greater than the admissions advantage enjoyed by legacies in every group of schools we studied. Not close. In the Ivies, it is also much greater, the admissions advantage, for recruited athletes than it is for underrepresented minorities. In NESCAC and the other liberal arts colleges, the advantages for recruited athletes and minorities are roughly comparable. A related question frequently asked is how recruitment of athletes affects racial diversity on campuses. The short and to some the surprising answer is that on these campuses, recruited athletes are slightly less likely 
than students in general to come from minority groups. I turn now to academic outcomes, bunching in the bottom third of the class. On average, recruited athletes earn much lower grades than do other students. Nor is the lower average rank in class the product of just a few students having disappointing results. To avoid burying you under rank in class distributions and regression equations, let me show you just one figure. We see here, this is the percent of various groups in the bottom third of the class. We see that in the Ivies, male students at, at high-profile athletes, by which we mean those who play football, basketball, and ice hockey, <clears throat> that four out of five of these recruited athletes, 81%, ended up in the bottom third, and nearly three out of four of those in the NESCAC colleges, the yellow bar over there, were in the bottom third. The corresponding figures for the recruited Male athletes playing the other sports, what we call the lower-profile sports, are slightly less disappointing, only slightly less disappointing. About two-thirds, as you can see, 64%, ended up in the bottom third, and over half of those in the NESCAC colleges. Substantial numbers of the recruited women athletes in the Ivy League also ended up in the bottom third, 45% as compared with only a quarter of the female students at large. The female students at large do better than the male students at large, which is why the reference point is, is a different one. The general tenor of these results is astonishingly consistent across individual schools in both the Ivy League and NESCAC. It is human nature to believe that a widely perceived problem applies everywhere but at home. And this tendency to look away is compounded by the fact that internal studies, one-campus studies, often lump together different groups of athletes, recruits and walk-ons, high-profile athletes, those who row or sail. <clears throat> in any event, if progress is to be made in thinking through what are shared problems, it's important to move beyond the everywhere-but-here mindset. A memorable moment, which Sarah and I will long recall, occurred at a meeting of all the NESCAC presidents to which we were invited. After we presented, at their request, data for the individual members of NESCAC with codes disguising the identities of the particular schools, one president looked up and observed wryly. The picture is very clear. There are no outliers, only liars. <laughs> <laughs> After some good-natured laughing, uh, the conversation moved on. I turn next to the subject of academic underperformance. As a result of the admissions advantage that they enjoy, many recruited athletes enter school with weaker academic credentials than most other students. This, this we know. But this is by no means the only reason that they earn relatively low grades and seldom graduate with honors an even more telling measure in my view. Recruited athletes also underperform academically, underperform academically. That is, as a group, they earn markedly lower grades than they would be expected to earn in light of their test scores and high school grades. The amount of underperformance is substantial and highly significant statistically in all of these sets of schools. In the men's high-profile sports, it is roughly 20 percentile points in both NESCAC and the Ivies. That is, a recruited football, basketball, or ice hockey athlete predicted on the basis of SATs, high school grades, and so on, to end up in the 45th percentile actually ends up in the 25th percentile. That's what we mean by underperformance, doing less well than you would be expected to do on the basis of your credentials. Underperformance is also present in men's lower profile sports and in women's sports. And here is the amount of underperformance in percentile points. As you can see, 1920 for the high profile athletes and, and so on. 
let's see. Okay. Contrary to what some have suspected, and this is an important point, underperformance is not found only among those with the lowest SAT scores. In fact, recruited athletes in the broad middle range of the SAT distribution are at least as likely to underperform as recruited athletes with the weakest incoming credentials. There are sport-to-sport differences, some of them surprising, but the overall pattern is quite consistent. Tennis players generally do a little better, Dave. You'll be glad to to hear. What is causing this pervasive phenomenon? We believe that persistent underperformance is related primarily to the criteria used in recruiting and admitting athletes. In the jargon of the social sciences, to selection and not mainly to treatment, the intensity and nature of the athletic experience, to differences in race or socioeconomic status or to what students study. Time commitments and involvement in an athletic culture are relevant, but they appear to be far less important than selection. Some, I think, compelling evidence. Highly significant degrees of underperformance persist among recruited athletes, even when these athletes are not playing on intercollegiate teams because they were hurt or they changed their or whatever. Clearly, time demands cannot explain this powerful result. A parallel finding is that walk-on athletes, shown in the red bars here, show much less underperformance, some underperformance, much less underperformance than recruited athletes, even when they are playing in a particular year. Thus, the main storyline appears to be selection, selection, selection. We believe that the interests and priorities of the typical recruited athlete, of course there are differences and so forth, are the key factors in explaining underperformance. It is hardly counterintuitive to suggest that, as one president put it, underperformance depends on the extent to which athletics is the focus of a student's life. Coaches naturally look, certainly I would, for candidates who are fully committed to the sport, to the team, and to the coach. It would be useful to think of hypotheses that would permit further tests of this line of reasoning. To date, we have been unable to identify any evidence that refutes it. Not surprisingly, many recruited athletes also tend to separate themselves from their classmates in ways other than academic performance. They often major in the same fields, especially in the social sciences, take many of the same courses, live together, spend large amounts of time together apart from practice and competition. In general, they form a tighter circle than students interested in activities such as the performing arts and student publications, who do not, incidentally, underperform academically in any case. These cultural patterns have an effect on academic performance and the academic ethos of the college, but they also have other effects. Disciplinary problems are somewhat more common among athletes, especially men playing the high-profile sports. An obvious question. Has it always been this way? Some recent history. The situation was very different in earlier days. In the Ivies, the typical male athlete in the 1951 entering cohorts, mid-50s, had a cumulative grade point average that placed that student precisely in the middle of the class. In the co-ed liberal arts colleges, the typical male athlete actually ranked slightly higher than the average male student at large in those cohorts. Also, there was then no concentration of athletes in the social sciences. In the Ivies, for instance, 21% of the athletes, 22% of the students at large majored in the social sciences. Athletes in the 1950s were as likely as other students, perhaps more likely, not only to study the sciences and humanities, but to be campus leaders, not just team captains. And many of these former athletes went on to become prominent in their professions and key trustees of many of these schools. Their own positive experiences as athletes and as students in earlier days 
can sometimes make it difficult for those with success stories from yesteryear to realize how much has changed. This is an absolutely key point to understand in discussing the achievements of former athletes such as, in Princeton's case, George Schultz, Bill Bradley. They attended Princeton in a different time. Their counterparts today have different characteristics, and there are reasons for doubting that today's linebacker will mimic the after-college performance of his predecessors. By the late 1970s, the picture had changed markedly. In the high-profile sports in particular, again, football, basketball, ice hockey, gaps in academic performance were now evident, and athletes were appreciably more concentrated than other students in certain fields of study. Gaps in academic performance were also found among male athletes playing the lower-profile sports in the mid-1970s. On the other hand, women athletes in the 1970s were indistinguishable from women students at large in their academic performance. In this respect, the women of that period resembled the men athletes of the 1950s. They did it all. By the late 1980s and early 1990s, the women were catching up with the men. And the athletic divide was more pronounced for both genders. Whereas women in the 76 entering cohort had done as well as everybody else, women athletes in the 89 cohort, in the Ivies in particular, now fell short of the standards set by their female classmates. Still more recently, as we have seen, the academic outcomes for recruited athletes in the 95 entering cohort have departed substantially from school-wide norms. Women athletes from the 95 entering cohort in both the co-ed liberal arts colleges and the women's colleges now show, for the first time, the beginning symptoms of underperformance that initially appeared only among Ivy League women athletes in the 89 cohort. The drift is abundantly clear. And it is probably less important to try to date precisely when the divide started to open up, especially since the answer is bound to differ by type of sport, by gender, by conference, than it is to recognize the unmistakable direction of movement. Because of strong forces within athletics, greater specialization of players and coaches, and general increases in the intensity of competition, and forces within higher education, increases in academic standards, more independent work. The divide has widened from both sides. There is not a single indicator, not one, pointing in the reverse direction. The driving forces are not random, do not represent passing shocks, and cannot be wished away. These forces should be expected to continue to distance the academic side of colleges and universities from the athletic side in which the professionalized model of intercollegiate athletics has spread and become ingrained. Now, does all this matter? What are the growing costs, I think they are growing, of the academic-athletic divide? First, at most of the schools we studied, admission of large numbers of recruited athletes entails substantial opportunity costs. Highly talented students, eager to take full advantage of the educational opportunities a particular college has to offer, are turned away because places have been claimed by recruited athletes who bring with them to college values and attitudes that make them less likely to do well academically. Underperformance is a serious problem precisely because it suggests that scarce places are going to students whose priorities take them in another direction. There is nothing more dispiriting to a faculty member than encountering a student, perhaps a student of high potential, who is inclined just to get by. Our goal should be to enroll students who will take a passable B-plus paper and rework it, and then rework it some more, who will, in the words of Arthur Lewis, a great friend of mine from earlier days in economics, go from the easy part to the hard part. Nor is it just appetite for demanding academic work that matters. 
Students should be open to participating in a wide array of activities, to give time to service projects, and to meet and get to know well a wide range of fellow students. They should not have a narrow focus on pursuits at some distance from the educational core of the institution, what Woodrow Wilson once called the main tent. Underperformance can also have serious spillover effects. According to an extraordinary internal study done at Williams College, and I quote now from it, when some groups of students habitually underperform, and especially when they are blunt about their own different priorities, the combination of their attitudes and their performance can affect the campus ethos. Faculty in economics and history are concerned about evidence of anti-intellectualism, of clear disengagement, even outright disdain on the part of some varsity athletes, end of quote. Heavy reliance on recruited athletes to field teams imposes another kind of opportunity cost on the school that is often less recognized. There is relatively little opportunity, less every year it would seem, for non-recruited students, the walk-ons, those in the red, to play varsity sports. Coaches often form their teams, on paper at least, before the school year even starts. And it seems more than mildly ironic that opportunities to play varsity sports, often paid for in substantial measure by tuition payments made by all students, are, in the words of a Middlebury faculty committee, the, ex quote, the exclusive privilege of those pre-selected by coaches through the recruiting process. Moreover, it may often be the less fully trained walk-on who stands to benefit the most from the real educational benefits that competitive sports provide. College sports, once heralded as a means of unifying the campus and building school spirit, have become less consequential in this regard as athletes and other students have come to see less of each other and as attendance by students at large at athletic events has declined. The faculty report on athletics at Williams includes this telling sentence. The claim that athletics unifies the student body collides with evidence that varsity athletics is resented by many of our top students. This kind of cost is difficult to quantify, but it can't be ignored. In addition, there are real issues of institutional integrity and truth-telling. Regrettably, there are numerous examples of differences between what schools say about their programs and what really goes on. For example, videos and other pro pro pronouncements about the openness of intercollegiate athletic programs to all comers are contradicted by the heavy preference given to recruited athletes when rosters are built. Even among recruited athletes, one regularly hears complaints about coaches who promise a starting position and more playing time to secure the athlete's commitment, claims that athletes as a group do just as well academically as other groups of students are almost always untrue. More generally, it is discouraging to see the disconnect that exists today between stated principles, for example, the assertion by both the Ivies and NESCAC that athletes will be quote-unquote representative of their classes and present-day realities it is all too easy to remain in a state of deep denial. Truth-telling is important, especially for institutions that pride themselves, as colleges and universities should, on standing for the highest level of integrity. One college president put it this way, we need to change either what we do or what we say. Looking beyond the campus, we should not underestimate the signaling effects of current practices especially giving substantial admissions advantages to recruited athletes on what secondary schools, parents, and prospective students do, how they allocate their time and resources. Dollar cost, fundraising commitments are also relevant, but I'm going to skip over all of that. Finally, on my little list of costs, there is a real risk that failing to reverse the directions now so evident will undermine the enduring values of intercollegiate sports on campuses where athletics is meant to be an integral part of the educational program. From our perspective, the challenge is to reintegrate college sports more fully into the overall life of the college, 
not to allow athletics to exist in its own space. A well-conceived athletic program offers tremendous benefits. Games are, first and foremost, a sense, source of pleasure, satisfaction, an important way of introducing some balance into a student's life. Competing on intercollegiate teams can be an important learning experience. Countless athletes have testified that one learns life lessons, teamwork, discipline, resilience, perseverance, how to play by the rules. As Bart Giamatti, the former president of Yale, once put it, athletics teaches lessons valuable to the individual by stretching the human spirit in ways that nothing else can. I agree. But realizing these benefits does not require the kinds of near-professionalized athletic programs that have evolved. The most compelling arguments for college sports are undercut, not strengthened by fielding teams that are cut off from much of campus life and in significant ways at odds with the educational missions of these institutions. What to do? A reform agenda for Division III colleges. And here I come back again and say this is not a talk about Princeton or even about the Ivy League. We have decided in attempting to encourage real change to focus on the Division III colleges because we think in many ways the problems are the most serious there and there's the, more, the most chance within the structure of the NCA and so forth of actually accomplishing something. In thinking about how to reclaim the game, we start with some basic assumptions. First, to achieve real reform, it is going to be necessary to work simultaneously at both the local, the individual institution conference level, and the national level. Some people ask why it is not sufficient to work only at the level of the individual conference, since the conference is free to adopt more restrictive practices than the NCAA prescribes. <clears throat> the rejoinder is that athletic programs are linked in ways that transcend conference borders. Not only do schools need to find suitable opponents outside their conferences, they also compete against across conference borders in recruiting and so on and so on and so forth. The individual conference is just not big enough to establish the tighter common boundaries that many of us think are needed. A second assumption is that a holistic approach to reform is essential, or an approach that deals simultaneously with all aspects of what we're talking about. Just tweaking the system or focusing on changing one piece of it is likely to accomplish very little. It may be necessary, though this takes us beyond where I think I should go right at the moment, to seek a new grouping of schools within Division III. At present, a determined effort is being made by some leaders within Division III to tighten up some things across the whole division. We hope that succeeds. But there is more that needs to be accomplished uh, particularly <clears throat> on the educational and academic side of the house. Given this reality, we think it is desirable to think in terms of a simple set of core principles to which many schools, different levels of selectivity and all the rest, might want to adhere, common boundaries within which they might want to compete. Let me just list a few of these core principles. I'm going to go quickly because it's warm in here and I want to leave some time for questions and I'll just pass over some of the detail. Core principle number one, athletes should be truly representative of the student bodies of their institutions. This is, I think, the most important thing. And if this could be achieved, essentially all else would fall into place. I'm often asked, of the many mistakes you made, I made, when I was in the president's office here and working within the Ivy League, can you tell us a few of the real, real bad ones? Well, one is that I invented something called the Academic Index, which is, was designed at the time to deal with the standards of incoming athletes. Well, I just didn't understand. I wasn't, didn't know that what I should have been focusing on was outcomes, not what people look like when they come in. And a very able faculty member at Middlebury College is now saying, look, the way to deal with the issues of representatives, don't, don't focus so much on admissions. 
focus on what people do when they're there, how they look when they leave. Are they representative of their classmates and how they perform academically? Do they study a wide variety of fields? Do they participate in this, that, and the other thing? Monitor outcomes and hold us accountable. A lot of sense in that. Second core principle. Opportunities to participate in intercollegiate athletics should be expanded, I think, for both men and women at schools that have less ambitious programs than Princeton and should not be limited to recruited athletes. There should be a real opportunity for ordinary students who are, were good athletes in secondary school, love to play sports, to compete for places on teams. Three, coaches and athletic directors should be integrated more fully into the educational life of their institutions. I think we really shortchange coaches these days by not giving them enough opportunity to contribute all that they can to the life of the place and to be evaluated on the basis of their broader contributions. Four, national or regional championship competition should be organized for the schools interested in operating within the new common boundaries, but should not be the focal point of a season. Fixation on national championships drives so much of what I've reported tonight. Conference alignment should be made more flexible with suitable opponents determined on a sport-by-sport -sport basis. <clears throat> In the nice phraseology of Dick Rasmussen, when the ball goes up, the pitch is thrown, the whistle blows, the gun sounds, the outcome should be in doubt. Schedules should never result in perennial losers and winners. And if this proves to be the case, orbits of competition need to be realigned. And I think some sports will require different alignments than other sports, and this is what a lot of the Division III colleges are now thinking. Last, very short section. Can, will any of this happen? Certainly the history of reform efforts is anything but encouraging. The barriers to any thoroughgoing reform are formidable. They include inertia, the natural, entirely understandable resistance to change by players, coaches, athletic directors committed to the status quo, caught up in the present system. Of course, they would like it to stay as it is. By vocal advocates among alumni and trustees who want to place still more emphasis on recruiting and so on. And of course, by the reluctance, perfectly understandable reluctance, of in the presence of individual schools to want to go it alone. Presidential survival is an objective with which I can identify strongly. Still, preliminary conversations with a number of presidents lead me to believe that the time may be right to make a renewed effort simply to change directions, to change the drift. The willingness to pursue new options is fueled by discomfort with both the rising costs of the divide to include the rationing of access, as I've said, to athletic as well as academic opportunities, and the truth-telling dilemmas that are more and more difficult for many presidents to swallow. Recent actions taken within the Ivies and within NESCAC are encouraging. There is more and more recognition that the divide is widening and the postponing action will only make the underlying tensions even harder to address. In sum, <coughs> college sports need to be restored to their rightful place in campus life. More regularly chosen students who have come to highly selective colleges for the right educational reasons should have the opportunity to play competitively, to learn the lessons that sports can teach, and to have fun in the process. Throughout their time in college, these students like all students, need to be guided by what Adlai Stevenson once said to a Princeton senior class. When you leave, remember why you came. Thank you. I'm done. Thank you. Let's see, we have time for some questions.
I think there are, are there some microphones around? I could hear you. <laughs> it seems to me your critical term of art there is recruited athletes. And if yeah. I missed it, I saw the percentages uh, on the performance scale, but as a percentage of a given cohort, as you have named it, has that been cre increasing over the years in these uh, institutions? And what is it, If can, can you say in Ivy's, NESCAG, others, what percentage of a, an entering cohort it represents now? To answer the first part of your question, yes, the fraction of recruited athletes has gone up everywhere. And the actual statistics are in the book. I don't have them in my head, but it's like all of these trends, just steady, steady, steady. And let me say one thing that drives it. Is this whole subject is so full of uh, ironies and complications, which is what makes it fascinating. When schools are concerned about limiting, as all of these schools have been, the number of places overall going to athletes in the class, right, what they may say to Coach A is, Coach A, we can't give you as many admits this year as we did maybe last year. We would like to. We can't do that. But we're going to pay very close attention to the people you really want. So what happens is the numbers of people on the admissions list go down, but the people taken are more and more pure distillations of what the recruiting process is all about. And I think that's a lot of what drives the underperformance figures um, that, that, we, that we see here. The other thing that's interesting along the same line is that the yields on recruited athletes, a fraction of those who are offered places who come, have gone through the sky. I mean, they're now 90, 95 percent in many of these schools because essentially deals are struck at the time all of this is being worked out. And what that means is there is no real double process of selection as there is at schools in the University Athletic Association, the UAA, which we talk about at length in the book, which have really avoided most of these problems, and where there is a double selection process because the yields are much lower. So it's a combination of sort of all of this stuff. And it's not, um, you know, it's not simple. Yes, right here. Oh, sorry, you're, I, I'm, I've exceeded my authority, excuse me. No, no, no. I'm interested in the distinction that you draw between what happens with the high-profile athletes and the low-profile athletes. And you, you mentioned in passing that, I think you said, tennis players tend not to underperform. They that, I just said that for Dave's benefit. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, what, one, of the one, of the sort of, one of the things that leaps to mind is that you, you might think that people who are the high-profile athletes come from a different kind of socioeconomic yeah. Background, yeah. and I noticed you didn't control for that in Figure Five. Well, I wondered what we you did control for that. I just didn't bother. Didn't you. say that you. Yeah, I didn't bother you with that today. But the regressions equations that run through the book yeah. control for socioeconomic status. And first of all, at these schools, the differences are much less than you might think. There are some, but they're much less than you might think, and they do not affect the outcomes. Any way you any way you cut it, you get you get the same results. In terms of differences by sport. I wonder how many of you would know the one sport, the one only sole sport that does not underperform anywhere. Uh, nobody's got it. Sailing. Sailing. And sailing. And my, my co-author, Sarah Levin, is an all-American sailor who was the captain of the national championship sailing team. She's also a brilliant mathematician. So, yes. I'm sorry. Yes. With the back, please. Boosters, coaches. I'm interested in your view of the role of college faculty who unarguably are the ones who are educators. Presidents have other jobs and don't get to teach as much. We hear about renegade professors at places like the University of Tennessee. Why no collective action from the faculty? And is there a history 
of the disenfranchisement of faculty relative to alumni, donors, and administrators. But faculty also have tenure in a way that coaches yeah. and presidents don't. I'm interested in your views on that. This man is not a plant. Uh, to the best of my knowledge, I never saw this person before, but he has asked an absolutely first-rate question. And what you find across the country is that faculty, first of all, are busy. they got a lot to do. And they, by and large, just choose not to be engaged. That's the general history and pattern of all of this. Now, at some of the smaller liberal arts colleges that I, that I mentioned here, it's not a coincidence that these internal studies to which I referred were led in every instance by well-respected faculty members at those institutions. And some of the most, I think, telling and pungent quotations in the book are from those faculty members. And what we're now beginning to see, particularly in the Division III colleges, is a kind of rising up uh, of the faculty who say, this affects what I do every day. This affects how my class works. This affects what my school is about. Uh, I want a seat at the table. And so it will be very interesting to see whether that development continues. The person most interested in the measurement of outcomes, on which I put a lot of emphasis, is a professor at Middlebury, a fellow named John Emerson, um, who is really convinced, as I am now, thanks in part to Emerson, that that's what we ought to be looking at. So there's, there's a change, but you know, and at the big places, you know, it's just too much. There's various hands here and there. Yeah, please. Thank you. Um, I noticed in your introduction you mentioned a few uh, qualities of recruiting uh, recruited athletes when they once they got to uh, college, I guess, such as they entered with uh, weaker credentials and they tended to underperform and right. or see uh, kind of self segregation uh, kind of issues. Right. And I noticed that a lot of those you can also say uh, are from products of affirmative action. And in The Shape of the River, you uh, right. seem to advocate affirmative action. And I wonder what diversity yeah. the people of a different race bring that athletes don't. Another excellent question. Doing very well. The questioners are doing fine. I don't know about the person answering them, but that's, that's a very good question. We talk about that comparison very directly and at length in the book because it's an obvious and important question to raise. Here is what I would say. First, some of the problems of underperformance, of academic underperformance, are without question present among minority students, as Derek Bach and I pointed out forcefully uh, in the shape of the river. But it appears on the basis of research done by a person named Claude Steele at Stanford and now by a person named Massey, who's actually coming to Princeton, maybe he's here now, is he here now, Nancy? By those two people, that the factors at work are quite different in the two populations that in the minority population in particular, a phenomenon that Professor Steele has referred to as stereotype vulnerability uh, is powerful. If either you or people around you expect you not to do well, you sometimes don't do well. And of course, one of the clearest identifiers is skin color. And the history of this country uh, associates skin color uh, with a whole set of problems and difficulties. So that is just a, a difference in what's going on. Secondly, there's a big difference in the trend. Underperformance among minority students is fortunately decreasing. Underperformance among the recruited athletes is increasing. And so the trends are different. But third, and this is what, I, to me, matter of values really matters. So I think that for these educational institutions to be first-rate educational institutions and to serve the society, they simply have to work hard to be inclusive in terms of race and socioeconomic status. I don't think that they would be good educational institutions otherwise. I don't think they would serve the country otherwise. And I was just tremendously reassured to see Justice O'Connor say much more clearly in the Michigan decision never been said before that that's what the court believes. It's what she believes, now what the court believes. So there is a centrality, I would argue, to the recruitment of 
talented minority students to the educational mission of the university, what it's supposed to be doing, that one cannot argue uh, with nearly the same compelling force when you're talking about people like me who had a tennis ball or the volleyball spiker. I mean, I have nothing against tennis players, Lord knows, it was one, and nothing against volleyball spikers, uh, but are they as important to the educational mission of a place as is racial diversity? No, I don't think so. So for me, it's a, it's a question that really comes straight back to what are you about and what is your educational mission and what do you do to have the place work educationally. I should add just one other thing, excuse me, to tag on. We were also asked not only this question, but what about other um, highly focused campus participants, oboists, you know, who spend huge amounts of time uh, with their instrument, blah, 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 blah. We were able to collect detailed data on a group of high-intensity musicians across several of these schools. No underperformance at all. So Overperformance, academically. So it isn't... It isn't just specialization and intensity. And in the previous book, we were able to look closely at a group of high-intensity extracurricular folks, who editors of student newspapers, you know, whatever. Overperformance, no underperformance. So it's interesting differences. I was wondering whether you got a chance to take a look at um, how much of the increase in the gap between athletes and the general student population of these schools that occurred from 1951 to the present was um, due to the fact that the overall quality of the, of the student body has increased substantially, as you yourself point out in your book on affirmative action, or in, as opposed to the athletes right. getting worse. I mean, essentially, how much of it is due to the non-athletes getting better versus the athletes actually getting worse? Very, another very good question. The answer is that most of the widening of the gap, certainly in terms of entering credentials, I think here we have to dis distinguish a little bit some of the measures, the widening gap in terms of entering credentials is certainly due in substantial measure, not entirely, but in substantial measure to the general improvement in standards. The fact that the whole ocean uh, has gone up. And there's a great, if you're interested in this subject, there's a wonderful article by a woman named Carolyn Hoxby, who's labor economist at Harvard, who explains in sort of brilliant detail the factors that have led to that, that have caused a kind of stratification of the higher education marketplace and more and more concentration of the ablest students in many of the schools that are in this study. Unfortunately, we do not have as rich a set of data for underperformance going back, which I would love to have, but we just don't have it to the same, to the same degree. What we do have suggests that the underperformance has also been rising, and that may be due not so much to the quality of the other students, but as to something else, something Nancy would know a lot about which is the changing curricula and the changing way students in general are taught. I mean, there is much more emphasis, if I understand the situation correctly, on independent work, on being in the lab, on writing a paper, on the kinds of what I guess I would call more active modes of learning than there was when I first started teaching at Princeton, when it was much more a matter of classes and lectures and all the rest. And it seems to me clear that the person who's focused on another pursuit is going to have a harder time keeping up with the committed fellow classmate when that's the mode of instruction. So I think that's also part of it. And in addition, the faculties have changed. And the other force widening the divide from the academic side is faculties are more specialized, without, as, as, as was suggested, without any question. And you have fewer faculty members today who are just interested in sort of college in general. You have people more focused on their own research, on their own fields of study. And that unquestionably also uh, has an impact. So I certainly don't want to be suggesting that this widening divide is caused only by things happening on the athletic side. I, I don't believe that. 
But I do think a lot of it is also caused by things happening on the athletic side, and particularly the increased specialization. Uh, Stan Smith, known to a number of people here, great tennis player, was the last national champion tennis player to graduate from college. And uh, the increasing need, if you want to be a top tennis player, again, sport I know a little bit about, to train constantly, to run up sand dunes, to be in the weight room, to do all the stuff you have to do to get stronger, to have more stamina, makes it harder and harder to do a lot of other things too. And so that tendency within athletics, which is, I think, present in essentially all sports that I know anything about, um, exacerbates the problem without any question. Let's see. Uh, one last question over there. In statistics that you showed, you were talking about what percentage of recruited athletes are in the bottom third of the class, and I was wondering if you knew the proportion of the bottom third of the class that were athletes. I'm sorry, um, you reported the proportion of athletes that are in the bottom third of the class, and I was wondering what proportion of the bottom third of the class is made up of athletes. Recruited athletes, we can do the math, I think. Maybe you can, at least. Uh, Martin, I know can. <laughs> uh, the recruited athletes, let's say they're 20% of the class. And if 80% of them are in the bottom third, then what does that give us? That gives us 80% of 20, which is 16. And the bottom third, let's say, is 35. So. I don't trust Professor Schwartz, but I do trust Mark. <laughs> let's let's thank uh, President Boyne once more. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you all. And, and I, I thank you especially for putting up with this heretic on this subject. Thank you very much.